0: KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM I'm Mark Molyneux This is the Henry George Program a Show all about land, policy, and politics During the program we have back on Rohin Ghosh He was on the path to talk about the youth movement, Palo Alto, and more Now we're here to learn a bit about the District of Columbia, our nation's capital What's going on with housing there? Rohin is going to school out there And is also serving in local government As part of DC's ANCs We'll learn all about that, uh, some talk about tenant issues, the larger tenant movement, and some general philosophizing about democracy. Without uh, further ado, uh, let's uh, get into it. So, uh, Rowan, thanks, uh, thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be back. Yeah. So uh, two years ago we were talking, uh, you at that point, it was kind of like youth activism was right before you're going off to college. Like what are people doing when they're young and getting involved in housing stuff? Uh, Then you've been off to college. You're still doing stuff around here. We work for the summer, but uh, I guess for people who, I mean, you can listen to the episode, but uh, introduce yourself for, for anyone.
1: Yeah. So my name's Rohin. I have been, you know, I grew up In the South Bay, uh, first Milpitas, then Palo Alto. And then past two years, I've been in college in D.C. at American University. And before going off there, I had gotten pretty involved here in Peninsula for Everyone, doing some pro-housing advocacy, and then also in a lot of uh, tenant organizing work and tenant advocacy work. That's in, in Mountain View, kind of the beginnings of the Palo Alto Renters Association, a little Bit of stuff here and there with Tenants Together, and since then, I've also been doing that whenever I've been back in town over the summers. Uh, this is my second summer in a row as an intern with Tenants Together. Also, I'm working on a fellowship with the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley, uh, doing some research into tenant protections there with Richard and Leah Rothstein. Uh, of course, everything I'm staying here uh, about everything I'm you know doing in the Bay Area or in DC or anywhere is obviously speaking from myself, not for sure. Not for any any third party, any other organization. But yeah, and then in D.C., what I've been doing is uh, I serve as an advisory neighborhood commissioner. You won uh, an election, right? Yeah, I did. Uh, I ran for an election and won uh, unopposed as a write-in candidate, but that's how actually a lot of ANC elections go. Uh, but I, I represent the district that covers half of our campus uh, at AU, and the ANCs are really interesting system of, of local government we're gonna we can get into that in a bit and then i'm also involved in the youth dsa chapter democratic socialists of america uh, at au and ydsa chapter and through that we've been organizing a lot of students and mobilizing around mainly labor issues but increasingly uh, housing issues on campus as well for or housing issues on campus and off campus affecting students
0: well, when it, you say labor issues, also labor issues on campus? Is this stuff... Like, mostly on campus. So I probably. mean, like, yeah, it's like we were talking about grad student unions and all this. And yeah, yeah, and that stuff, and, university
1: staff. Uh, we've just actually we're part of a big campaign that just we just ended up actually getting a contract for, uh, or the union just got a contract, uh, Unite Here Local 23, which is our dining workers at uh, at AU and a bunch of other places all over D.C. So that type of stuff, and then also, in D.C., I'm involved in a number of organizations, Sunrise D.C., local chapter of the Sunrise Movement, but uh, has its own local flavor. And then I also work for an organization called, uh, in D.C. called the Latino Economic Development Center, where I've been doing some eviction defense and organizing support with tenants
0: as I said, like you've you've been building up you know, kind of this like a crazy resume as like a teen. and I'm not surprised that like velocity <laughs> remains like at that high level or something. Not to say it's resume building, but I mean just just it's a big list of stuff, uh, you know.
1: But I think in some ways the way it keeps happening is like one thing just feeds yeah. into another, right? And it's like, and if you can't say no, <laughs> yeah. Well, that that's the other thing. It's a it's a skill I'm a little bit lacking in. But then also it's like you know things kind of feed into each other and and just you know it kind of is a natural progression in a lot of ways for stuff
0: yeah, no, it's uh, but uh, yeah, we we met up uh, during some of the transit stuff, the mm-hmm. transit funeral the other week, uh, and uh, I think we were talking about okay, I, I just kind of want updates on what, what's going on, and so it's always nice to have you know folks back kind of talk about the same stuff later, and you said, oh, you really want to talk about DC in particular, yeah, and I mean, honestly, I will say offhand, I don't know, uh, really anything about DC politics, I know very little about. The geography, structure, history, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, I mean, I, I'm coming into this conversation uh, as a you know pretty ignorant person. So, I'm, I'm I I think just which I don't know. I'm a lot of the listeners probably in the same boat, uh, but uh, yeah, the the thing you talk about is the an the, the ANCs, the Advisory Neighborhood Commissions. Mm-hmm. Uh, very I mean, when I. When I hear that, it reminds me of in Cincinnati, they have community councils huh. for all of its different neighborhoods. Those like have, I don't think there's elections in any way. They have a president. I don't know how the president's even set. I think it's just like figure out some sort of system. And then it's just kind of a bunch of busy buddies show up. And honestly, in my experience, they're just almost kind of all bad. And it sounds like the ANCs are just, like, I guess the question is, tell me how the art uh you know, just busy buddy orcs. Like, what, what, like, what, what is the, what is the, what are the strengths and weaknesses, or why, insofar as they exist, should they exist? What is the strength of them existing? What, what, what do they do, good and bad? Just, I just tell more about them.
1: Yeah, sure. So, I think the the first unique thing about like a kind of sub local government type of thing, and I think this is unique also to the context of DC, is that the only step above DC uh, above the ANCs is the DC Council and the Mayor, which Council for getting numbers. Okay, uh, eight wards, and then there are
0: totally blank. I guess on you numbers. can just say, is it big or is it small? Because a lot of cities, are like, oh, it's surprisingly big, or if, it's like, not like
1: Chicago, where it's like giant.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, I think it's like a normal size big city where it's like LA goes right? the opposite direction. It's way too small for what it is. Yeah,
1: I think it, it, for for DC it works. Okay, uh, so yeah. me, it's
0: medium sized.
1: Yeah, it's a medium sized council. Okay, but. You got to remember, in, in D.C., right, because there is no, because, you know, D.C. is not yet a state, but really needs to be. Yeah. The council effectively is our state legislature.
0: That isn't, I mean, just offhand, if does it have a plan ready to go for, like, how we would set up a state government? Like, is there, like, in the bills, like, oh, we would just, we, we have the whole assembly and Senate ready to go or whatever? I,
1: mean, I think the, the idea is that the, the legislature would be the D.C. council. I mean that's my I, understanding of that, which is i mean it's not that unique, like Nebraska has a unicameral legislature w- uh,
0: would it, would it basically duplicate it and say, well, one we have kind of the same structure, we still have the city government, then we have the state government <laughs> i think it'd be like how San Francisco is just a is a city and county like it's I, yeah it'd be the city county government consolidated state government which is solid one state.
1: it it'd be that
0: yeah, much. i mean I guess like you see in places like Germany, they have like like Berlin is like a city state. Yeah. And I guess you I guess you can do that.
1: Yeah, I mean it's not like you know, San Francisco doesn't have another county government. Like uh it's yeah. it's, its own thing. And all the You know, services and departments that are county-run anywhere else. I guess it's never done by the city and county.
0: Yeah, exactly. There's no examples in the U.S., but there are internationally. So I don't know if that is like the the plan the advocates go for, but I'd like to see it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I think like among among the different questions, like this is one that's one that's relatively settled. Like, I mean, the functions of any local government or any subnational government at all are are already largely run by the the dc government like dc's on the hook for you know all the functions of a governed place
0: i I guess it's just a sideline yeah if you say does it make does it make sense i mean to my mind counties make sense to cover area and cities to cover urbanities and san francisco doesn't have a non-urban area so like yeah why not consolidate them yeah uh and I guess on this yeah the same token if you're talking about like yes a state versus a county to me it's the same thing honestly I think we honestly should only have cities and counties us you know
1: yeah, I mean it doesn't make sense also and there's an interesting side note is there's some interesting like things like that in the DC area DMV DC Maryland Virginia area yeah yeah where you know Virginia is pretty hardcore with their application of Dylan's rule where uh, this, you know state supremacy over local
0: government. But they also have the independent cities there. They also
1: have some. Yeah, they have independent cities. And also. They go
0: crazy with them. There's like there's like 35 in the U.S. and like 33 of them are in Virginia. It's nuts.
1: Yeah, they're kind of wild like that. And then they also like they have cities that are counties like Arlington and Alexandria are both counties. Uh,
0: Oh, is that always independent cities work that way or is that only some of them? I
1: think I'm not sure. I'm not too sure how that works in Virginia.
0: But yeah. I also know. I mean, yeah, they're, like, they're, out, they're outside are... of a county because I, I think in general, because I made a county map of the U.S. to do different stuff, and all the Virginia cities are just screw yeah, like, Everything. Fairfax up. Fairfax City is its
1: own thing, and then the rest of Fairfax County is Fairfax County.
0: Like yeah, and, and there is also in Virginia. There's a lot of cities that have the name of a city and then a county. And they aren't the same. There is, yeah. like, I, I think, is that like Fairfax County isn't Fairfax City? Like they're not even yeah. close to each other. They're just Fairfax City County, or there's well, Fairfax other... City is completely surrounded by Fairfax. County. Oh, wait, there's must be different. Like Richmond, there must be a Richmond County that is not the same as there Richmond City. There might be. City. I'm not sure. There are, at least some of these. It's like they are completely different parts of the state. It's Like you rename yourself or something. Like, yeah. This is this is not good.
1: But yeah, there's there's some interesting things like that. Like D.C. area also, like Montgomery County in Maryland. Obviously has a lot of independent cities, but also like some of the most densely populated areas of Montgomery County, like Silver Spring, yeah. are, in, are unincorporated. Well, but uh, what, most of the functions of like legislating or governing, you know, the cities do their own thing. Yeah. So like Rockville has its own stuff, its own like own thing going on. But for the most part, a lot of policy, a lot of you know, just generally what's going on is set by the county government, Montgomery County in Maryland.
0: I think when you said independent city, I think you meant incorporated city. Yeah. Incorporated city. In, in, yeah. yeah, because in Maryland, Baltimore is an independent city. It's the only independent city in, in Maryland. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>
1: yeah, I meant incorporated. Yeah. Too many I words. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, yeah, The the ANC system, it's unique because in many ways it's, you know, it's a hyper local form of government. But it is also one step below what anywhere else is the state legislature. It's one step below what the top government of that of, of the locality is. Yeah. And and it's also like uh it's a fully government system. Like it's not like, you know, a, a sort of small like or separate
0: club of or separate organization. It is a government government system. Like So, so when it's called advisory, is that misleading? Is it like advisory I makes mean, like, oh, you can come, speak your mind, we might listen to you, might not. Is it does it have actual Protections stuff like oh you have to do what it says or these people on, Cause, cause, on something sort of. Okay, so in your ANC, I know like there's different single member districts, and I guess yeah. you are one of those single members. Yes. How many are in your ANC? Mine is a
1: commission of eight. Okay. And it's a pretty it, that's a on the larger side. I,
0: I I heard it said most are five or six. Yeah, most are in that range. I did my research in one blog post, and
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, So so ours is eight. There's I think a couple that are ten uh, around the city. Ours is eight, and it's a pretty big and pretty high profile commission because it contains a commercial strip uh, and two metro stations, and and of course the university. Yeah, which means that we we have a lot more on our plate than one that's like just a residential area.
0: So let's say in your ANC, like something that means something to you, like a tenant protection. Let's say you do politics, and in your ANC, like six out of eight say yes, we want this to happen. Yeah. How does a bill become a law? We can't how, does it, how does that matter? We don't legislate. What can you do?
1: So what we can do, we can on certain land use issues. So if a uh, we can negotiate, if a developer, or if anything is proposed that is not zoning compliant. If it's zoning compliant, it's by right. It's just a, goes through the zoning commission and yeah. just goes. If it is, it's a ministerial approval. If it is not zoning compliant, then we have the right to, as a commission, commissions have a right to negotiate with the with the developer, with the proposer of the project. Sure. For what is proposed in exchange for the, zone, for the requested zoning variances. And then based on that, the commission can, once they come to an agreement, recommend the variants granting the variants to the zoning commission and those recommendations are statutorily required to be given great weight by
0: the commission which means they're usually followed so like i guess it i mean i will say when when i hear that it does like just make my head burn of all the kind of like the calvin welch model of kind of getting concessions from a project by project basis but i suppose my, my first question is is it possibly better sounds like there's actually a process as opposed to like oh a bunch of like neighborhood people come together kind of you know raise hell see what happens and uh you know maybe it sounds like at the very least there's something of a structure
1: there's a structure to it and then there's also the fact that you know in the sort of you know community meeting model of development policy it's whoever's Loudest who shows up can do it, right?
0: Yeah, the fact that's actually are not elect- electing
1: who comes to yell at a, yell at a city council meeting.
0: I mean, I'll say this: like, I, 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 like, I, I use local bitty but a form of democracy, as a pejorative. Like, it is not great when it's like, oh, it's who shows up on a Monday night and stays for six hours. But if you have an election, like at least it's a structure. You are yeah. you are the busybody. <laughs> you're not but just you're not just the most annoying. If you're the most annoying, everyone hates you. You can't win. You know.
1: And obviously, there are, there are a lot of issues here, right? Like the fact that I and a lot of other candidates ran unopposed. It's a huge problem. I mean, there's there's a lot of structural barriers to running for ANC. It's a volunteer position. What happens if no one runs? The seat's vacant, which is true in a lot of a lot of single members.
0: So they keep the district. It's just like okay, you have like out of these six, you know, two are empty. The yeah. rest of you folks just do whatever. Yeah. Okay. Does that make it so if
1: there are people who do not have representation like that, which is a big problem.
0: Yeah, it's that's weird that you don't only kind of fold it into something else as a default until something happens. It's like okay, sorry, you got no. I mean, so anyone can then petition for a special election. I you,
1: you know raise collect signatures to run on a special. Election.
0: Yeah. How many? Yeah, how hard was it to run unopposed? Like how many signatures you have to get? All like how much? So I didn't have to get any signatures because I wasn't on the ballot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, your signatures were your write-ins.
1: Yeah. Did you? So I, and the reason I ran as a write-in is because the signature collection period was over the summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I and everyone else was, who's was all of my, you know, constituents, yeah. all the residents of my district. For the most part, no one was living in my district.
0: Well, okay, so it was too late, but you had a chance to go in as a write-in. Is yeah. this unusual or does this actually happen? I mean, a lot of candidates are write-ins. Yeah, interesting. What was your What was your vote count? It was like fourteen. Not, did was there any other names? Like it was unopposed, but like anyone just write in like you know a dirty name or something. I don't think so. Okay, nice. I mean,
1: and the thing is, obviously, in my district, there's another challenge of most college students are from out of state. Sure. And getting someone to give up a home state registration to register to vote in D.C. is a bit of a tall order
0: yeah no absolutely that's that's yeah it's it, it is a single party state so like, yeah you, most people lose out in some sense yeah and, 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 and you can't do federal stuff obviously yeah
1: you you can't vote for any you know congressional seat other than that delegate seat you can't vote yeah. for senators you know if you got a your your mom's friends running for school board back
0: home or something like yeah mean california seems bad but yeah that really puts it to shame that's pretty that's that's pretty something yeah yeah
1: so, so that that's kind of where, where was that with the election process? But then definitely, like there's there's huge structural barriers to renting for for ANC, uh, and that's why overall ANCs are tend to be mon- many more homeowners than DC as a whole. DC is majority renter, but I mean, I I would not. Expect the same of ANCs.
0: It is nice that uh, you, like there is almost no waiting period. I don't know what the rule is. Is it everywhere? Can you run as a writing candidate the day you show up and register? I, I don't know how, how that works.
1: Uh, I think the residency requirement was two months. Okay, which is perhaps it
0: should be less, but at least it's yeah. At least
1: and I and I think you know I you know I consider myself now a resident of the District of Columbia. I'm there seven months out of the year. Yeah, seven months out of the year. I'm Fully dependent on everything that happens in D.C. Uh, as are you know, the vast majority of my constituents, my students, AU students, are just like any university students, which in D.C. are a huge population. There yeah. you know, D.C. is AU also has GW, Georgetown, Howard, Catholic. D.C. is a big college town. Yeah. Uh, so there's a huge population that's largely there for seven months out of the year, and of course, you know, a lot of students also stay for the summer, but you know, the population fluctuates like that and that population is there for the majority of the year, even though they are not permanent, you know, still are a constituency of the, the goings on of D.C. They are you know, very dependent on what happens in D.C. and they also affect what happens.
0: So I guess like your district in general, like and, and in general, like, is there a conflict if you have a district that has the, the students and then also the locals and they can't see eye to eye? So my work?
1: district does not have that because the way the district lines were drawn for this past election, yeah, uh, the two seats on campus were fully campus seats. Okay, that's so, but our you know there's a, there's a neighboring SMD single member district that's in a different commission area, and you know several of those seats actually have very significant student populations, but their commissioners are not students. Is this like those are in the off campus areas with? A lot of students live, but also a lot of non-students also live. Here.
0: If I'm being cynical, I would say there it would not surprise me if local longtime residents work to gerrymander to limit student representation because they have they, they can wait them out and they can make maps that are bad. To oh have, yeah, to no, have maps that are good seems like that. seems lucky.
1: Yeah, and the the process to get two guaranteed student seats on a commission of eight, so a quarter of the commission being guaranteed to be students, that was a very very difficult process to get that to happen. Uh, Yeah. But that's what ended up happening, and it's it's from a representation standpoint, it's huge.
0: That's, I mean, like, it is, having a student, like, a student political movement's hard because you have a student leader, they're gone in four years, usually.
1: Yeah, it's always very difficult. And it's especially difficult, I think, in D.C. because there are a lot of students who do not have, who, who do not kind of intrinsically themselves create a connection to the place they're living. Sure. Uh you know it's it's easy to feel like especially especially uh with with american university because it's you know kind of off in, in a glorified suburb neighborhood Yeah. Uh, so,
0: so is it in tenley town or what's the deal or is it's it... it's in a neighborhood called au park which AU park, is okay. next
1: to tenley town okay tenley town's our closest metro station but it's it's in a neighborhood that is very much you know more sprawled out low density uh although there's higher density stuff right next to it but it's uh, you know, very much a lot of single family homes. Uh.
0: I was I was clo- I was I was close to that last summer. I was in D.C. for a, like a long weekend uh, seeing hmm. a friend, but also I was part of it. He was working. I was just uh, doing tourist stuff by myself. When I did, I went to the ends of all the metro, back and forth, yeah. and back and forth, and I stopped by a few places that I really needed to see firsthand. And like in my mind, the number one tourist attraction in D.C. is the Cleveland Park Metro Station. Uh, right next to it is the uh, first strip mall in the, in the U.S. The first map Yeah. The, the little Cleveland Park strip mall there. It's so cool. You know, what that is history in action. It's, yeah. It's in, uh, and I guess, like, so is 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 the, is the two stops up, is the Cleveland Park area kind of like it? I mean. It's similar. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Similar I mean, vibes. I mean, I think that gives an idea that strip Yeah. Mall. And
1: actually, a lot of AU students, you know, who live off
0: campus, live in Cleveland Park. Okay. I mean, two stops is not much. So. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's there's a lot of kind of you know th- those are old suburbs, which yeah. is usually not the worst suburbs. But I mean, the entire density of DC is weird. I mean, it is I, it is very very interesting It has density caps. There's no core, and like the, there's like the weird Singapore walking well, mall it's because area the of the core of DC is a
1: neighborhood like the the core core you know the you know around around the National Mall that is the one part of the city where. Basically, no one lives there. Yeah, and it is the most detached from the rest of the city, where you know that has its own unique culture, where people live, where people you know have their have their lives.
0: I hear people, yeah, people say, "Oh, there's really good arts districts in the like this I, I mean, it's it's kind of weird because other places usually have like, "Oh, you kind of know you go downtown, see where it goes," but like it feels like you have to kind of know where you're going in the suburban grid of DC because it certainly isn't in the core or something.
1: Well, I mean, DC has also like really dense urban core neighborhoods they're just not like like they're all kind of arranged around the periphery of this like core which if you look at like you know what is you know the city of dc what is the the community of dc yeah is like giant gaping hole Basically.
0: It's, it's odd, yeah. <laughs> but, it's it's like a donut. <laughs> but, but there are density restrictions, certainly on the cores. The whole city has density, like or height restrictions, certainly, or how does that work? Yeah, I mean, there's the Height Act, which is a federal law. To and
1: and that's the entire district?
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Does uh, it... And it's and contrary to popular belief, it's, it has nothing to do with the height of the Capitol or the Washington Monument or something.
0: It's. I think I have heard that as a factoid. That's not true. Yeah,
1: it's not true. It is related to the width of the facing street. Oh, it's it's variable.
0: Yeah. Oh, I I, I thought it was a, just a ceiling. On the whole,
1: no. It's related to the width. Of, it is that a building cannot be more than like I think one and a half times the width of the facing street.
0: So we need to widen those streets to have taller buildings. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it,
0: you could, but we shouldn't. But then there is also. Yeah, no, that sounds like it's an awful. That's an awful kind of paradigm because yeah, you want you want small streets and you and but you don't want to have that screw you over or something. But
1: the other thing is like we have like you know on along a lot of those big corridors, right? Like you know eight, ten, twelve story buildings. Yeah, and on some level, it's like once you know once you are at a certain height. I mean, once you are going higher than that, you are getting diminishing returns in terms of like. Costs to build housing.
0: I always hear people say, like, when you get to eight stories, you might as well go a lot higher. And I always hear, like, eight is like, it's certainly that's kind of stuff tends to go to about eight because past that, like, you, it doesn't make a lot of sense to go to 12 or 15 if you can't go to 60 or something.
1: I, I'm not. I've not heard
0: that. I mean, that might be true. I think that's to do with like the fact you're, you're going to steel framing, you're doing like yeah. some real stuff at that point.
1: I mean, there's neighborhoods in DC that definitely have buildings that are in the 12 to 15 story range. Mm, okay. I mean, like you know, Navy Yard, Noma area, which are very, very interesting kind of development areas because you've got the fact of you've got like a ton of concentrated uh, investment in housing in one place with, you know blanket exemptions to inclusionary zoning in those specific places, which gives, gives you the, and oftentimes places that are very adjacent to very poor and
0: historically black neighborhoods,
1: very similar vibes in some ways to like Mission Bay, Soma, or like the new stuff in Hunters Point type of place.
0: Well, that's okay. So that's the first question I kind of have on that idea, which is. Like, like, what is the level of housing unaffordability, affordability, and what is the level of like people clinging on? Because like, two like a first approximation, a lot of the like a lot of the Bay Area one is, it is completely unaffordable, and two is the native populations, you know, in all but a few areas, you know, have been completely priced out. Like, what what is the general dynamics in D.C. like, and I guess like right here when people say, oh, I can't live in my area. They're going two hours away. Yeah. Like in like, as opposed to a less screwed up place, it's usually, oh, my place got, you know, gentrified and I can't live there, but I can go 20 minutes away or something. And I'm kind of, you know, what is the general dynamics?
1: So I think in DC, it's definitely less bad than the Bay Area. I and mean, what isn't? But it, it's, it's still definitely pretty intense. Yeah. And, and this is actually something that... Would you call it a coastal metro? Yeah. Okay. You know, we get the Potomac River has tidal flow, uh which, which wet, makes it yeah. coastal. Yeah. <laughs> I think there there's a there was a term there's a sort of phrasing around this that was actually used in the chapter of Connor Doherty's Golden Gates that was describing actually like Redwood City East Palo Alto area. Yeah, the North Fair I, Oaks. Yeah, which I think was I think is also applicable in, in DC, which is that the way displacement of low income people in rental housing oftentimes works is not so much people getting priced out and moved somewhere else, which definitely happens in DC, but also the fact of you are having people, you know, have to move more often within a shrinking pool of of of, of affordable housing.
0: Yeah, it's, it's kind of like a it's like a really messed up game of musical chairs. I mean, I will say, like I. I coming from grad school here and finding places that I could barely afford was just north of North Farrow Oaks in Redwood City. And it, it like and a place that uh, f- some friends and I went there is because it was like one of the few places we could afford. Yeah. It, like, it was twenty seven hundred split up three ways. It was a live work warehouse, was a weird place. But like the fact is like it's like that was a pretty good deal even at the time. But part of it is you're precarious. And in the end, yeah, we got evicted a year and a half later. Our landlord was a psychopath. Yeah, like it's like you kind of take some weird it's like, oh, when the price is right, there's usually some weird things that come with it. And that could lead to displacement and kind of shifting around to another weird place. And that that happened to me three or four times. Yeah, I mean, that
1: type of thing happens in D.C., right? Where it's like people bouncing around between like row house basements that people rent out. uh, Yeah, like that type of thing. And then also, you know, there are neighborhoods in D.C. that, you know, D.C., historically has been a majority Black City. Um, yeah. It was, you know... At they, one call it, point, they call it
0: Chocolate it was, City. Yeah,
1: yeah. Which also, if, if you want anything to, you know, any knowledge on, you know, history of D.C., the culture of D.C., read the book Chocolate City. It's a it's a beast of a book. It's well, a, when was it brick. written? It, it's pretty recent. I think it kind of chronicling of history
0: ends around the early 2010s. Uh, but I guess, like, historically a Black City, and if you're yeah. saying, like, it has changed, is, is that... Is that signifying displacement? Or is in in, it
1: in many ways, yeah, I think to a large extent, yes. Like to, there are neighborhoods to, where yeah. the nominal black population has significantly decreased.
0: And I and, suppose there's two questions. We're talking about the district, district, and there's also the DC Metro, yeah. which is like the ends of the metro line go into Maryland, Virginia, obviously. Yeah. And it seems like at the end of the lines, there's a lot of places that seem relatively. Uh, like affordable con- compared to anywhere in oh, yeah. DC. Yeah, yeah,
1: and uh, so a huge migration of of black people since the actually end of end of segregation, uh, end of de jure segregation, but but more so even recently, has been from DC into Prince George's County, Maryland, and now even into Charles County, Maryland. Mm. Uh, and that's on the sort of north and east sides of DC. Okay, uh, and and that's partly been. You know, low income black renters being pushed into finding, you know, less expensive rental housing. It's also been, you know, another pattern that we've seen of, you know, you could call it displacement or you could call it out migration. There's a lot of ways you could phrase it, but of, you know, people who are at the point where they can
0: economically afford homeownership, just not in, you know, the city. So I mean, you see that. I mean, that so many people go to Stockton, yeah. or because like, oh, I can, I can own a place in Stockton. I can, and the
1: D.C. area, you know, that's, uh, you know, that that is in Prince George's County
0: and in Charles County, Maryland, and also in Virginia. When people go there, what is a chance that they're going to be metro connected? How big of a like, how big is that a lifeline that people need versus like, oh, uh, it's fine if I don't have a metro connection, or they have parking and rides. And that's I mean, it basically... depends.
1: There are big parking rides out there. Yeah, I've saw some. Willmada loves its parking ride, parking rides, and, and and also, you know, obviously, like the suburbs are definitely more car oriented. Sure, which yeah. is you know sucks, but less. I mean, Montgomery County, especially, and parts of Virginia, definitely feel less car oriented in the South Bay. Like, but you know, they're still suburbs. But there's, there is definitely that migration happening. And then the other thing is in D.C., like a lot of, uh, of black people who've been displaced out of the other neighborhoods of the city have found their only place they can afford or lower income black people has been in areas that are called east of the river. It's Ward 7 and 8, mm. uh, which have historically been and still are to a large extent kind of areas that have experienced a lot of issues around concentrated poverty. Which is, and it's still very much the case
0: is the greater Tenley area I mean like I'm just thinking Cleveland Park Cleveland Park was always an affluent like white area right yeah and like is is the Tenley like ANC area does it have places of more you know uh you know kind of historically uh you know un folks or whatever or is it there, all well to do you
1: know along Connecticut Avenue actually kind of in and around you know up above Cleveland Park but then also around Tenley town there's areas that are Know a lot of larger apartment complexes that are giant apartment buildings that were that have been they're pretty old. Some of them were built in the '40s. That are definitely obviously more working class than just the single family homes. A lot of students live in those. But in general, I mean, my my SMD the campus is the least white census blocks in the entire surrounding area. And AU has a reputation as a really white school. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, so, so it is a you know very white neighborhood and definitely pretty affluent
0: too. So, so here's always like my take on community councils and the Cincinnati. and things like the places that are the disadvantaged, the you know gentrifying, the minority and poor areas. I think their community councils can be like they seem like they're badly run and like busy buddies kind of control them in ways that are not great. But I can see the argument that like, they need more representation than even their main government. Yeah, sure. Have them have extra voices, whatever. Like, if you have a rich neighborhood, like I I don't think they should have extra representation at all. They should have less representation.
1: Like, I definitely, it- definitely hear that. I mean, I think there's, there's a big thing also of, like, a lot of what ANCs do is basically a lot of busy work that would otherwise be, like, city agencies doing, which in some ways is kind of a, a messed up thing that they're, you know, city agencies are outsourcing work to basically volunteers
0: like like to me like if it is like oh parks and recreation jobs kind of go to local you know community representatives to decide what color the signs will be or something oh sure who cares that's fine like i mean like that's the kind of like like that's just you know it doesn't really matter but like well what's work being delegated that isn't like this actually matters that is like like
1: it's like the, the responsibility to like you know Get on, for example, D. Dot the Department of Transportation's case about like finishing particular transportation projects, for example. Mm. That is oftentimes an ANC responsibility. Um, and, okay, and, and that's something that an individual council member you know could do.
0: So, in a positive so a sense, neighborhood you could say stuff like, like that could include like pedestrian bike infrastructure oh, yeah, and stuff for sure. like good stuff. Yeah. So,
1: if you have a you know pro bike. Pro pedestrian, pro transit majority, which importantly we have in the Connecticut Avenue ANC now, and, yeah. and also in in the Tenleytown ANC, in my ANC, you know that that can really be a big deal. It can make sure that one we get those projects approved, yeah. uh, and then secondly, you know at the Connecticut Avenue bike lane project right now, like the mayor is kind of evic- kind of e- equivocating on it because there's pressure from a lot of business groups and stuff that are worried about losing their parking or whatever, and that type of stuff's going on. But the ANC is such a solid that represents almost the entire corridor is such a solid and this is a Cleveland Park ANC actually, which is funny. Yeah, oh, no, nice. I Uh so solidly in favor of of getting that bike lane project done that, you know, the the strongest like local the, the local elected voice is very much saying build this bike lane, get it done.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh and that and that's huge. Similarly on on there's been some changes on the uh, WMATA's bus redesign plan, which is is a plan that we, you know, contingent on operations funding, if implemented would be would be pretty great. But there were some issues with it that were kind of issues that can only really be pointed out by a local body.
0: Yeah, I guess that probably should be on my go-to other than like parks is like, yeah, it's like transportation issues because the status quo is bad and people doing local work. I and mean, Palo Alto always seemed this way to me. It's like, Palo Alto is like an evil place. Like and I, 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 I dislike it. But like they do have a lot of busy buddies who do good work on making sure it's more bikeable. It's like, okay, yeah. yeah. It's like that I, I, I don't like the fact you're so exclusionary, but like, yeah, if you want to be exclusionary and better bikes, that's better than being exclusionary without better bike infrastructure. Yeah. So great, go for it. You know, I have no I have no problem with that. Although I wonder if when you mention the original structure of ANCs, it's like they can't do stuff, but they do have veto points or kind of they do get in the way to make recommendations. Maybe they're not veto points, right way to say it. But it sounds like when there is, you know, kind of stuff that is not zoning compliant, they, you know, can make agreements, et cetera. Yeah. I guess my first question is, like in the past, I did an episode in the past about it. And like, I can't stop thinking about like, wow, it's everywhere. The idea of pretextual zoning is like if you have a structure that says, oh, if something is non-zoning compliant, then we have systems. That's a very strong incentive to say the baseline zoning is not where we want zoning to be. It's where it should be a little bit below or a lot below, because if everything we ever want to do is zoning non-compliant, that makes sure that people get involved. It's Because if, if everything is by right... Then no one has anything to do, and that makes people upset. And also, you can't get the concessions. So, yeah. like, so there's a strong incentive to say, "Oh yeah, make a make an artificially bad zoning thing, so everything has to be, you know."
1: Yeah, and I think that, that's. I mean, that's definitely a, a big issue. And then there's also the fact that now in DC, that you know now that the under, under the comprehensive plan, which you kind know, of sets some of the zoning parameters. Yeah. Uh, the fact that now the the gap between what zoning says and what developers want to do is less because the you know a lot of the Wisconsin Avenue corridor has been upzoned
0: yeah because
1: of that now RANC has a lot more to do and therefore also more leverage uh because developers well, well, are actually proposing projects.
0: Oh, that's interesting cuz like if it's because if it's, it's been upzoned. Yeah. Now if like, it's so big or something if something is like so restrictive that nothing could ever make sense, yeah. then like it isn't like oh there's a huge gap we can it's like well nothing's happening. Like So if, no,
1: you, have, no, if you have the <laughs> politics that are like, <laughs> you know, no one's going to go to super everybody like
0: we want a 100 story building. It's like oh well, let's get concessions They just would never do it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But if you have, like, you know, obviously the key ingredient in that, though, is a commission that's willing to play ball. Yeah. Uh, which, it's, luckily, my commission is. We have a pro-housing majority. Have have major disagreements with other commissioners on my commission on a number of issues, especially on public safety issues. But housing is, and broadly, like, that we want housing to be built here. Specifically, subsidized housing is great, but also housing in general is good. We want it to get built. Yeah. Like that's that's a pretty consensus opinion on the commission, yeah, which is very helpful as far as getting you know that it creates a climate where you know developers are willing to play ball,
0: yeah, uh, I, like if if pretextual zoning is. Gone right, it's kind of like a little bit of a tax. It's a little bit of value capture everywhere. So if you kind of smooth it out, it's like, oh, yeah. you can, you can, you, everything is not quite zoning permitted. It's kind of close. Just you know, put back a little bit extra, and it's kind of like a tax. It's like if that yeah. if that really works and scales. That's kind of sensible. The question and is, how does DC it break definitely down? Definitely
1: builds more than a lot of other cities. Not nearly mm. enough, yeah. and not nearly enough in the right neighbor. You know, and I think one could say too much in certain neighborhoods and not nearly enough in a lot of neighborhoods like my own. Yeah, you know, and I definitely don't think that you know having the the way it works in DC is the ideal system at all. Really want to go towards a sort of like a form based type of yeah model or something like that where. You know, there there isn't this whole, like, we have a parameter set that everything below it's okay, but, like, once you're at this point, like...
0: Yeah, it's an entire paradigm that's kind of goofy or whatever. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I think that's also a problem, obviously,
0: of relying on the private market to, deli- to, you know, deliver the
1: built environment that we
0: want. Yeah, I mean, the planning system is like, oh, we have the capacity to kind of, like, dictate and say what you can't do, but, like... It would be really nice if you have a real public capacity to say, and we can like, and we, can, we
1: want to do this. Yeah, like, this exactly. is what we
0: want to do? So we're going to do it. Right? Yeah, I mean that's in a lot of ways we don't shy away from actually doing stuff ourselves, but with housing, it tends to be oh, it'd be nice if we could fund this and do this, but you know, yeah, if if you really want to, you could, you know. That's I mean that's what I mean. I know you're not here to talk about like Montgomery County, but it is interesting to see Montgomery County. Kind of spinning up its own social housing in its own way. I don't, I want to, I want to learn more about the details of that. Oh, for
1: sure. And then speaking of that, actually, that's a good segue into another thing we've been working on in DC is we have a a bill out of our council member Denise Lewis George's office uh, for a social housing program. Uh, Bill's been on hold a little bit because it, you know, is getting workshopped with a lot of the initial group of advocates. and, And that is one of the main groups behind it, Sunrise DC, which is a group I've been pretty active with. That one actually is, is similar in a, in a lot of ways to a lot of the other social housing programs we've seen proposed in you know, California, Hawaii, Montgomery County, which is now going through more kind of political process around their social housing around changing some of the processes, adding funding, that type of stuff. Yeah. But the D.C. bill is interesting because some of the like core pieces of it are uh, adding a really strong kind of tenant democracy within the buildings. Uh, having an elected board, uh, a board overseeing not just, you know, what color you paint the walls or whatever, but like actually the operations, actual operational decisions, financial decisions that are made and having a, a board to oversee that be elected both at the building level and at the program
0: level. Which kind of is a social housing with like co-op characteristics. Something. Yeah,
1: with definitely. Yeah. Like in that sense, like co-op characteristics.
0: Yeah. Uh, which, like, in compared to like a lot of public social housing, could be very much like, oh, yeah, we'll stick you here, but like, you don't have a whole lot of say if we boss you around, you know? Yeah.
1: And I think that points to like a huge problem in general, which I've run into in, in subsidized housing, which is in, whether it's, you know, public housing, traditional public housing, or like subsidized housing in general, LIHTEC especially, or voucher tenants in market rate housing, is that. Oftentimes, you know, the tenants who are kind of getting the worst of landlord abuses, worst of that power dynamic, are subsidized housing tenants. Sure. Uh, and I'd say, like, you know, responding to, you know, doing door-to-door eviction defense work in D.C., you know, a huge portion of the people we were we were contacting were in subsidized housing. Even here, some of the buildings we've run into with the most egregious issues are, are subsidized housing buildings. Uh, right now, there's one in Burlingame we're working on. Yeah
0: crazy situation. Is that a light tech or is that a different thing or It's
1: uh, rapid
0: rehousing of all things, which is for for like a fire or what? No, like homelessness program. Oh, yeah. okay. When well, you I rehousing made me think like, yeah. oh, something happened to old housing. Okay. So it's it's like it's it's a kind of a Yeah. In,
1: and that that's one that's definitely like kind of early on in that process. They're yeah. not super public with it yet, but sure. there's like in general, you know, there was a report that just came out from Mission Local in San Francisco. Uh, some awesome investigative journalism, but they looked into evictions in subsidized housing in San Francisco, and specifically. I think I think in PSH, uh, permanent supportive housing. Yeah, and the numbers are insane. No, I mean, I, I mean, it was the crazy thing I saw, and that was actually Tenderloin Housing Clinic, you know, run by a, a interesting character. I think we can say um, <laughs> that one. They they have in the past. I forget what the time scale was. I think it was like five years, but I'm not that sure. Check out the article. Uh, everyone should check it out. Uh, you can just like look up Mission Local subsidized housing evictions or something like that. Yeah, f- should yeah. come up. They f- they filed more eviction cases or like filed more notices than they than total units that they manage.
0: Is like multi- people getting multiple on the on the thing or yeah, yeah okay it, right. it's
1: insane yeah. Uh, so I think a lot of that issue, you know, that power dynamic could be corrected in some ways with having like a governance body that is entirely elected of tenants.
0: Yeah, I think I mean if you talk about in general, like what is stopping you from being bossed around? And you could say like what happens for most people, like if you're someone who just is a schlub who gets a rental and you have a landlord, there is at least some sort of give and take, like, okay, you know, you got me. There isn't a huge amount of people want to pay the same. Like I am you know, front of the line. It's like, you know, deal with me. We can make it work out. And usually there is like some ability, like, but they're at least kind of on something which is on the, uh, like the level of like a mutual agreement happen on day one. Whereas if someone is in the affordable housing Situation It's like you're waiting on a queue. You're lucky enough to get it. Yeah. It's like they're at the tip now. Put now. up with whatever the hell we're gonna do. Yeah, it's like, oh, what are you gonna do if we if we boss you around? What are you gonna do? Is, is another place gonna go in their queue? No, you're 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 screwed. You know, so like you like you like obviously they have much more of a capacity to be bullied because they have less alternatives. Yeah, which in DC I think that
1: points to another very unique thing that we have in DC, which similar thing was just passed in san francisco which is very interesting san francisco is called the union at home ordinance in dc there's actually a legal right for tenants to organize mm. uh, and it's partly related to topa the tenant opportunity mm. to purchase act which is a whole other thing we can get into in dc it's a very interesting process and like um, dc is
0: usually mentioned as like the place it's it like, all the, the epicenter place that kind of has it yeah, yeah yeah yeah
1: and and it's not usually a means for tenants to actually purchase, although that's ideally what happens in many cases. But it's When, not, you,
0: when but, you have tenants who are about to be evicted, but they have a huge amount of money, it's like, oh, that's, that's a great... It's like, oh yeah, just use your money to buy it. It's that easy. But uh, but there are other side effects or like other outcomes that happen that are oftentimes
1: way better than anything else that could happen. The other thing kind of related to that is DC has very strict right to organize laws. And also tenant associations can... Officially incorporate with the, with the D.C. government as actual organizations, as official bodies.
0: Like, uh, like, like are they treated like unions as far like what, what's
1: the in structure? In some ways. They don't have like collective bargaining rights okay, that's quite, quite the same way. Okay. Like there's no like Wagner Act for tenant associations in D.C. Yeah. But tenant associations can form as official bodies. And importantly, they have the right to rent strike. That's not quite collective bargaining, but that's a huge thing. It is leverage. Yeah, absolutely. It is a legal thing that they can do. The way it works is they have to put rent money in escrow.
0: Oh, interesting. So you can't, like, it's like, oh, you can't stiff them, but, like, you can show symbolically it's going escrow and you're doing action. And the
1: the court can award the escrow back to the tenants in, in certain cases where it's, like, really bad.
0: Yeah, because I mean, a lot of people would say like, I want to do a rent, rent strike because my landlord isn't doing fixes or something. Yeah,
1: which is that—that is the. Is in DC to to declare formally file a rent strike with the court. You have to have a reason. Yeah, uh, and that can be done on an individual basis. Uh, it can also be done on a court uh, on a on a collective basis, which is a huge amount of leverage. Yeah, I
0: mean, yeah, it sucks to if you, I mean, I've never done it. I mean, I've had bad landlord experiences. I've never sued anyone. I've never, never got a small claim score. I've never even, like, yeah, filed anything with local stuff. Like, it sucks, you know? <laughs> like, I <don't> yeah, know. <laughs> it was really bad. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, I, like how often does that happen, rent strikes in D.C.? It's under- not
1: that common, but it's also not unheard of. I, and I, the fact that it there's a legal mechanism yeah. means also that gives people more courage to do it when it's a little bit outside of the legal parameters, too. Like there was a huge thing going on early in the pandemic when there were a lot of, you know, people who were, you know, behind on rent before the like, you know, eviction moratorium stuff really kicked in. There were rent strikes that were done around the idea of if some of us are behind on rent, yeah. all of us are going to be behind on rent. Yeah. So if you want to evict some of us, you have to evict all of
0: us. Like yeah, actual solidarity yeah. for like COVID stuff, yeah. Which
1: was in a lot of, and a lot of that was organized by there was one built one famous Case of that was at this building called the Woodner, which is one of the largest apartment buildings in D.C. It's
0: huge. And that's because people are talking about that over here in a kind of abstract case. Like, wouldn't it be nuts if we all got into having a rent strike and there's like no structure yeah. in California? That's interesting. If like in D.C., you're already on third base as far as if we do it, there is a system. I mean, obviously, I think the courts might find the whole like if it's that's rationale, it might be un unlikely to work. But at least you have a yeah. system.
1: And I mean, there's also the fact that like you can delay stuff in court long enough that yeah it makes it easy can pressure them into giving up yeah I mean and if, that's if, been something we found with doing eviction defense too there with uh, because in DC and I'm not a lawyer so I'm not super familiar with like the court process but but because in DC we have longer notice periods for evictions for non-payment evictions how long. I forget if it's fifteen or thirty days, which okay. in California statewide it's three days. Yeah, which yeah. Is insane. That longer notice period makes it so that you know you have time where you can then prepare a defense. Yeah. Uh and then if you end up doing it such that, you know, everyone mounts a defense and that clogs up the system so much that, that forces that could force the landlord into a position where they have to bargain. Yeah. Which is actually something that's not necessarily unique to d c like there's uh something that we come up with recently that was debt collective and l a tenants union mm. uh came out with this last summer tenants together also had a hand in it. I think Ace was also a little bit involved. I think some other groups also are probably missing but the called the tenant power toolkit
0: sure. primarily
1: focused on l a county but was letting people automatically file defenses to unlawful detainers to like uh the final step in the eviction process yeah uh like because most of those are default judgments because uh, no one shows up. Yeah. People are
0: scared to go to court. People don't know how to do it. I mean, like LA, LA Tenants Union, a lot of their thing, like it's like, it's very hard to contest an actual eviction in a real way, but like you can do a lot of actions against landlords just doing illegal stuff. Yeah, that and too. Like, and like, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, and if you just say, like if a landlord is just bossing people around saying do this, do this, do this, not even following it along, if you at least have tenants like what they are entitled to, which is usually not very much, but yeah. it's something. Like it's it's kind of crazy how like that's can be a big difference.
1: But with this tenant power toolkit thing in DC, which is interesting, which is also what we were doing kind of manu well, the tenant power toolkit in LA in yeah, LA, yeah. which we were also manually doing in, in DC, which is by going door to door uh and trying to get people connected to a lawyer like that. And now we're gonna try to shift that to a sort of participatory defense model. Yeah. But the idea is most eviction cases, what happens is like landlord files the case, tenants are terrified. Yeah. They just pack up and leave. Yeah. Yeah. The Tenant Power Toolkit, what was happening, what, what that changed is you can, it like literally is an interactive that walks you through the steps of e filing your like court response. Sure. So now there's a hearing date. Yeah. Which at that step, I think a lot of landlord people, like attorneys were just mass, like automatically filing evictions weren't even expecting to go to court. Sure. Now they have to actually show up in court. Yeah. Now they have to now you know, they have to wait for a judge to be available. Like all of that has to happen.
0: Yeah. Which is like well, what ostensibly when you wrote the tenant protection, that was the idea, but in practice yeah. most people don't take I mean, advantage this is of it. And
1: true of a lot of legal systems, right? Like yeah.
0: this is true of the criminal legal system
1: too. Sure. If it worked the way it's written out, if it worked where everyone actually
0: had a lawyer, everyone actually took a case to trial, Kind of no like, one would go to jail. Well, it's kind of like what happens with rich people. Like there yeah. are there are occasional rich people who do crimes, and go to jail because they're egregious crimes, like they yeah. kill their wife or they do the drunk drive. But like they don't usually go for for in jail if they don't yeah. have, if 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 they could have found a way out of it. But if you're a poor schlub, the system would just eat you up because you yeah don't, you don't have a good lawyer. <laughs> All this stuff
1: with the you know same with the eviction process. If you know if you know, if actually everyone gets a lawyer, if every eviction. Is a legal process and not just if it's a judicial process, not just like a landlord wants it to happen in the court rubber stamps it process. Yeah, then it breaks the system. Like the system is not designed to actually work like that.
0: Here's a spicy take in a way, which is I feel the tenant movement has a kind of love hate relationship with the idea that there is increasingly uh, a class of tenants who in another age would have been homeowners by now feel kind of peeved off like I'm a well to do young professional but I'm a I'm a renter this isn't right you know which is like oh it's like I don't like the fact that like all these people who are like privileged and kind of annoying are now like oh like they're part of the tenant movement I don't like them but like honestly if you talk about like who historically has put a lot of power in you know union movements and everything it's people who have pretty good jobs who have a, like a good amount of power yeah And, like, the same kind of thing with tenants, that when you have people who are not just the trod-upon dregs of society, people who are spit upon by everyone, when you have people who are, who have more social, cultural, and economic cachet, like, that does give the ability to say, oh, yeah, like, if you want to beef up tenant protections, if you want to actually have, like, a movement to make this work better, it is nice to have that muscle behind you, and... I mean, yeah,
1: I think the trick, though, is like, how do you how do you get that to a place of that where, where you actually create solidarity between people who are just like, I'm renting and I want to get out of this as soon as possible to the people who, you know, have accepted the fact that they're or have or not, but are like renting for, you know,
0: the foreseeable future. And that's just how they live. I guess it's like, for example, if you're passing just cause you know protection stuff, does it? If you are a renter who is selfish, doesn't think about stuff, like yeah. does it matter if like you do it because of solidarity, or if like the solidarity comes along with the ride? Like it would be bad if they say, "Oh yeah, we get just cause," unless you like if. But if you're poor, you don't get it. It's like, well, that'd be that'd well, be awful, obviously. The, but it is nice. The landlord getting-
1: lobby's actually been trying to use that selfishness, though. Like you know, if you look at the attack ads they ran or the attack mailers they were sending out in Burlingame, San Mateo, Mountain View, and. In- Especially Burlingame and San Mateo back in 2016, yeah. uh, when they were trying to pass rent stabilization and just cause over there, uh, all, all three cities plus Richmond, just did yeah. Richmond, Mountain View, not in Burlingame and San Mateo. There was a, a huge issue of the, the messaging that was used by the landlords, was, by the apartment association, by the realtors, was that passing tenant protections will not uh, will, will stop your landlord. From keeping you safe by evicting like "quote unquote" bad tenants,
0: yeah, that is the weird thing about like yeah, just cause in general, like it, like I was talking about this the other week about like ADUs and like rooms to let. I mean, the fact that ADUs are becoming bigger and bigger, it is kind of like like it's turning everyone into a landlord, which is e- like politically dangerous. Yeah, right? and I, I and I, it's like well, the idea of just cause is that should be the way that you protect against like. That should be yeah. like real reasons. People say, "Oh, they it doesn't work too well in practice." It's like, "Well, why don't we f- fix it?" I don't know. Like, yeah, I don't like the idea that people should be evicted without a good reason ever. Like, yeah, that just never. Like, I it's mean, crazy. I, say, I mean, I, I possibly say if it's a room in your house or something. But even if it is essentially a, a roommate situation, there probably should be something. Like, even well, it's if it like, room- also
1: if you're if you're signing up to. Be the the owner of a place someone is living in. Like you're signing up that someone is housed there. That that is someone's housing. Now
0: I was a master tenant one with sublessees, and like it felt it felt uh like fell out of pressure, and like honestly I lost a huge amount of money because I was getting evicted. And the thing is like on day one, I'm like you know i'm getting like we're all getting evicted in three months, and they found places you know the next day, like I could have not told them because yeah. like i was I had empty rooms for three months, and like i was that was just on me or something, and like that was me trying to be conscientious as a master tenant, but like it was in my economic disinterest <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like anti interest to do that I don't know yeah, I don't know it's it sucks you know it's not yeah. it's not a great feeling, and like uh I mean I, and I suppose you have a structure. it would be kind of nice if it was a co-op situation, like I wouldn't be the one holding the bag in that situation in that yeah,
1: situation. in a co-op situation, or like you know if there were just more basic protections like
0: yeah, no, I mean, if it was like like I suppose like, that is a weird thing if you I don't think there's any kind of thought like oh if it's a if you're all getting evicted in the timeline, should you think about how to spin down a master tenant situation because that's increasingly common,
1: oh but, yeah. And I think, like, all of that, like, notice periods are important for that. That also yeah. allows people time to mount a legal defense. Yeah. One of the things, actually, about that, you know, piece of, like, high-income tenants, low-income tenants, uh, and and this, you know, kind of, is it possible to build solidarity? How do you do it? Uh, it's been very interesting in D.C. is D.C., you know, on the city level is very segregated. Uh, sure. But... On some level, on the building level, and I don't know the data on this, so it may, may be that it is also very segregated on the building level. And to an extent, it feels like some buildings are a little bit more integrated than than in other places. And that's because of you know inclusionary zoning in some places and then also uh, vouchers. Because hmm. uh, DC also has a local voucher program that's, that's kind of on top of Section 8. It works the same way as Section 8? It works as, it literally, I think, to qualify, I'm not completely sure because there's other, like, a lot of stuff here I'm saying that I'm not, like, completely sure of, but it's, I think, has very similar requirements to Section 8. Sure, okay. So it's, it's mainly to basically give people a voucher while they're on the list for Section 8, but but waiting for a yeah. Section 8 voucher. Uh, and it's locally funded. That There's also permanent supportive housing vouchers. There's a lot of voucher programs, That is creating a situation oftentimes where you have buildings where you have, you know, sometimes older tenants, uh, older, whiter, like older, more white tenants in a building. And you also have like, you know, largely black voucher holders. Yeah. Uh, In a lot of these, this is especially a problem in in Upper Northwest, kind of around AU, a lot on Connecticut Avenue also. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes you've seen some really strong solidarity, especially on rent stabilization. Sometimes you also see like a, an attempt to use the fact that there's these like m- kind of multiple groups of tenants for some of the most gross politics possible. Uh, for example, there was this was a, a press conference that happened a while back where. The then council member, uh, Mary Che, the mayor, the chief of police and, this, and some other people were also there, proposed a moratorium on voucher holders being placed in Ward 3.
0: That's, I mean, offhand, that sounds, I mean, in it general, sounds it sounds and highly also illegal. Crazy. I mean, that sounds like, I mean, the Fair Housing Act doesn't deal with voucher holders, right? I mean, in California, we've been shoring up, like, no, you can't screw over Section 8 people, like, all these different laws. Well, D.C.
1: also has that same thing where it's, like, source yeah. of income is also protected status for tenants.
0: Good, yeah, okay.
1: But it's, like, you know, attempts like that will be made to sort of... Exploit the fact that there are different groups of tenants to divide tenants. Yeah, uh, you know, fear mongering. A crime is coming to your building, not just and also your neighborhood. For all you homeowners out there, also. Sure, but it's like at the same time, there is also then an opportunity to get you know people on the same page as like you and your neighbors are both dependent on you know these programs working. this generally progressive housing policy yeah uh and even in places that are otherwise a lot of you know higher income white tenants and that that's created created i think an interesting dynamic uh
0: I mean it sounds like I, I I do I I I think vouchers are one part of a system like they I mean some people are voucher like panaceas and I think that's kind of stupid but It's it's so goofy. But the thing is like honestly like I do really like I was mentioning before we started talking like in in Finland they just have the state fund just pays yeah housing uh vouchers like and they it, it essentially works the form of, like income compression like it means if you're poor you effectively you know make more as far as your housing goes which is like that should be the idea if your neighbor is poorer than you but you both kind of have some like that's nice to see i i, I would love to see more systems that kind of create more you know, integration of folks who like it doesn't like everyone you're building is your exact same economic cohort or whatever? Like, honestly, I like, I, perhaps you should compress incomes in general. If that's a better, if this is a more feasible politics, yeah. I'll take it, you know?
1: I mean, one of the, there is a big problem also with the voucher stuff in DC is that some landlords can actually make more money renting to voucher holders than they can, especially with rent, with tenants protected by rent stabilization. Uh, yeah. Which we're, we're also working on shoring up rent stabilization in DC because the, Cap this past year was crazy. Get into that in the <laughs> next thing. Yeah. But there is there's a bill now to, among other things, have vouchers also be cut, like rents and voucher units or rents for tenants with vouchers to be also covered by rent stabilization, which would be great because it would get rid of the sort of two tier system. I think in general, this is a thing in labor also. You know, whenever you're introducing tiers. multiple tiers, yeah. Creating different classes of workers, different classes of tenants. It's like the UPS system. Yeah, yeah. No, that creates that that creates a that creates problems. That makes it it creates anti solidarity. Yeah, uh, yeah, it, yeah. It, it it creates a, a pro boss or pro landlord political economy.
0: They, watching, we they want, want, to, want to, to fight each other. Yeah,
1: because uh, you fight each other.
0: And like, I think like also it's a matter of design. When you design vouchers and like if you do do it well, it does create like a system like, oh, a lot of places it doesn't make sense. Like They're going to try to close the door on you. And then other places, like outside of a threshold, then they just make money on you. It's like a kind of weird arbitrage. So it's either yeah. like, it's usually like crappier places like, oh yeah, we just feast on the, on the voucher people. And then inside of it's like, please don't let them in here. <laughs> it's like, that's exactly the opposite of what you want, which is like... I, I mean, I, I i was about to say this earlier We talk about in the past when people who are in, you know, in affordable housing situations, like subsidized housing situations, uh, that they are often bullied. And it's in the largest scale. These are policies designed by people for others. They're kind of yeah. like charity cases. And like in general, if you are a politician, you are almost certainly a homeowner. And at best, you are, you know, a renter who is, you know, doing it on the normal market. Maybe you are looking into, like, protections for you, but there is very, very few people who are, like, being helped by these programs for high subsidies, which means, like, if the people designing it aren't really... Yeah, I mean,
1: it's fundamentally anti-democratic.
0: Yeah, it's I mean... I've always, like, I've always said, like, yeah, the least well-off people should be the main people in politics because, you know, like, it's... it's, Well, and
1: that's why also the political process of designing that social housing bill in D.C., something the coalition's been doing a lot, has been trying to shop it around to tenant associations that are either, like, the products of Topa deals or in subsidized housing... Or that have formed around some sort of you know kind of big punchy fight. Yeah. Uh, so tenant associations, associations that have you know things to say. Yeah. Chop uh, it around to those types of groups and like get their get their involvement and their feedback, and then also even chop it around to you know traditional public housing. Yeah. Uh, residents in traditional public housing.
0: So, we've been going for like, you know, well over an hour. And like yeah. I know there's a lot of stuff we haven't come close to talking to. I just, one thing I kind of want to just say right now it's like, I feel like this has been a great kind of getting into all these weeds of different systems and like, how do you like turn yeah. the knobs? Like, as far as what is your hopes as far as like the greater movement is like the real reforms? Because I think we are talking about different stuff like 10 democracy, better protections. Yeah. You know, like, I do you think if those things turn on, a lot of people would, would, raise doubts of like, what if you are only kind of helping uh, people right now, but if you aren't already in the system, like, I mean, for example, like, I th- I think th- there's a lot of bad faith critiques of rent control, like, oh, it's dividing people who are helped and the people who are outside. It's like, yeah. I think it's like, like no, you just grow the pie of people who are helped them. Like, but I, I would say, I mean, like, for example, like, I, I believe in, you know, strong vacancy control, rent control, but it is true. If you do that badly it can be a small amount of people like i think like if it's crude price control like new york style stuff i don't think that's wrong but you can screw it up where like it just breaks yeah and like well, and what happens if it breaks and if the democrat like if the democratic structure is like well the politics are no one lives here except the people who live in the broken system a lot of people just make it into condos or whatever but like oh yeah we don't build rental housing anymore like vancouver doesn't build rental housing You know, it's like that could be one thing you do. Like who is administering it to make sure we have like a ton of rental housing or just like I I mean, I I guess how, how do you deal with those critiques assuming they aren't just bad faith of like how do you make sure there isn't an outsider insider kind of divide?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for this, like fundamentally, like for me, I think it comes down to democracy, right? Yeah, I think, you know, we need political democracy, which is... You know, I, D.C. statehood. Uh, yeah. A good first step on that. And making, you know, systems of government that are more accessible to people, uh, you know, I think it's a huge problem in D.C. that A&C, you know, are so accessible only to, or not so, but like accessible only to people, you know, who have time to do a meeting once a month, like. And people who As can volunteer and people who can afford to live there in the first place people who can afford to not have to move every few years also. yeah yeah that can you know, afford to live in one like couple square blocks area for two for like four years for yeah. two years uh, the whole time and you know be a multi-term commissioner even longer yeah. yeah uh that's one thing and then so how do you you know change those types of representation streams uh, that and then you know from an economic standpoint labor democracy yeah uh, you know just that's, I think, a pretty basic thing. And, and from that same token, on the housing piece, really deep tenant democracy. yeah, uh, Having tenant collective bargaining, and ideally even on a sectoral sense even, uh, which is, you know, kind of incumbency piece of that being checked by the political democracy piece. D.C. did a really cool thing recently, which congressional Republicans and a lot of Democrats too, unfortunately, are really losing their minds over, which is uh, non-citizen voting. Um, yeah, like well, that, well, that well, type of thing. It's like, do you know, do how you do have...
0: reforms Like, like San Francisco does that for school districts, and like, and into my mind, it's it's insane to me that like, if you are affected by like housing tenant issues, like if you are a non citizen who's a tenant, you don't have representation. Like, yeah, that's nuts. You know, like crazy, and like we just take that for granted. I I don't know. Uh, but like, so what? What's what's a general like? What is is that actively being well? It, changed? It's passed in DC now. Okay.
1: Uh, you know, for the 2024 election, I'm pretty sure.
0: Uh, so it's like for not for all non- well, you don't do federal stuff to begin with. So I guess you Yeah, kind of- <laughs> and for
1: all non-federal elections in DC. So other yeah. than
0: like the president
1: and yeah. the
0: the the, the, the delegate non-voting delegate. And the delegate. Yeah. Congress, everything else. Big loss. <laughs> it's like yeah, that's a, that's that's pretty Big good. Big loss,
1: you know, uh the Democratic candidate is going to get 90 ninety six percent instead of ninety
0: eight percent vote <laughs> no I mean like it's like it's weird how that is it seems a fringe position and honestly vote like being able to have local representation is a basic human yeah. like it's it's just weird like you have to be a federal u s citizen to have that it's like why why it's crazy why and and I think so all these three things are something that
1: now you know in sort of my my own work is like very specifically I'm trying to bring as a bring up as student things these and then also transportation which is huge yeah. also which we barely even touched on because another big piece of this is, yeah. is students are very large number of people in dc uh you know just au alone's is 8000 people dc's not that big a town sure you know it's just under seven hundred thousand people oh wow uh you know consider the number of students
0: the number of schools it's a lot
1: of people in dc
0: sure what's the biggest school in all of dc I'm not completely sure. You don't have like a, you don't have like a big state school. No, there's 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 which
1: is the local public university. But I think it, it's not, that. it's not the Ohio
0: state of of DC. It's not like 50,000 people or something. But,
1: but on the whole, there are a lot of students in DC, you know, Georgetown, GW, they're not small schools. Howard is not a small school by any stretch. Yeah. You know, political representation, you know, representing students is, it's one piece of that, uh. You know advocating for you know two students to be involved in d c issues and also to the d c government to make that easier um and then that labor piece you know students take up a lot of the same jobs that just like generally low income working class people do yeah uh you know you ever go to a coffee shop outside of a college campus mm. or you know a lot of students work restaurant jobs and stuff to you know Get themselves through college or workshops like that on campus where grad students are all you know working for universities and stuff so that's a big labor issue also dc we've been working a lot on the on hospitality sector labor you know unite here local 25 is being very aggressive with organizing in hotels so Uh, is
0: that like across? like when you organize people who work in food service is that like a mixture of students and non-students yeah that's cool
1: yeah uh we had a lot of students at AU who are really involved in knocking doors for getting initiative eighty two passed, which got rid of the tipped sub minimum wage. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Will phase in a transition to getting everyone to the full minimum wage. Mm. Uh, and then the groups that were involved in that also did a bunch of know your rights trainings for for people on campus. So that, and then sort of next phase of that, that what we're going to be working on at AU is getting people, getting students. We did a know your rights training already, but Trying to build a student tenants union that is kind of almost like a quasi-sectoral tenants union, works on campus and off campus, uh, but creating a sort of backup body for, you know, students who are entirely tenants. We already had students, you well, know, testify on rent control, uh, getting that cap from 8.9% this year down to 6% for two years.
0: And how much the student body flows onto local housing stock at AU?
1: So a u houses about four thousand students on campus there's about eight thousand students
0: Okay. Them. so, so yeah. a
1: significant number of people
0: sure so it's, it's yeah you have
1: colleges pretty that do much all, all of them renters so. yeah
0: you do colleges that like they house almost all of them, you have one that house almost none of them that's right in the middle that's interesting yeah yeah
1: so that like you know those those three things, and then obviously there's a downstream effect, I think of the you know it's just a policy thing but also a downstream effect of the local democracy of the political democracy piece is transportation issues. Yeah. Uh, students are I think the large one of the largest groups of people that are l- like predominantly non-drivers. Yeah. Which is you know, a neighborhood like Tenley Town or AU Park, which is, you know, a little bit off of Tenley Town, is definitely means that we have to constantly be advocating for uh and you know, not it just is, getting projects one... approved, but getting them done
0: on service, transit service it's one of the, pedestrian the, stuff. the most golden opportunities. If you have someone who's already a car driver, lives in a place, you're like you, you like take it out of their cold dead hands. Like it is so hard to get someone to get rid of their car. If someone goes to somewhere new as a student, and doesn't have a car. Like you just have to stop them from getting in yeah. the first place. Like that's that's easy mode. You
1: know? Yeah, I mean, and and the cool. I mean, the coolest work on transportation stuff that's happened, I think, in the, you know, recently has been in Berkeley Telegraph for people. Yeah, uh, we we we're not quite at that level. Uh, with transportation advocacy yet, but this is something that all of the student commissioners across the district have been super active on uh, GW area commissioners, Georgetown area commissioners, uh, Howard area commissioners have all been very active on pushing on transportation issues Yeah, as well as my AU counterpart, uh, Diego Carney has been a huge voice on bike issues. Uh, and then that, you know, in combination with just all of those general ways that, you know, students are sort of a natural, have a, have naturally aligned interests with, you know, the broad-based
0: working class of the city uh, in D.C. and honestly everywhere. Yeah, they're not low income in the same way, you might say, but they there's you know, a lot of they ways they are. A lot of ways they are, yeah. yeah, and many
1: of them also are actually low income, too. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, At least many of the ones that are active on these things.
0: I mean, they might say, "Well, in a few years, I won't be as low income." But you know, who knows? You know, a lot of (laughs) people—that's not you can't you can't count on you know. At least among among you know my circles of humanities majors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's. We're we're fighting for this stuff now because we're going to need it forever. There you go. A question for, like for you, I mean, this is kind of in general local democracy. Like to me, that still seems like an oxymoron to some degree. Like I feel like localism is in so yeah. many ways opposed to what democracy needs to be, or at least it, there are sharp edges. Yeah. And and I, I are there are there ways we can avoid localism and democracy butting heads?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think. One of the biggest issues that we run into with like the localism democracy issue is the fact of we have quasi quote unquote democratic systems uh, that are not actually accessible to people that are not actually democratic, therefore. Uh, So
0: you're saying like on paper, they're not awful, but in practice.
1: Yeah, it's the problem, right, of, you know, the who can who can. You know, Ford coming to a planning commission meeting at 2 p.m. on a Wednesday. Like
0: yeah. That type of thing. Well, how do you fix it?
1: I think, right, that's, that's where, you know, it's a big question. I think the ANC system does part of it by, you know, at least having electing the people who are then doing that stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then actually having the, you know, government agencies supporting people to do that. I think, you know, people will call me selfish for saying this, but by the time it happens i will not be an anc anymore at least not in my current district mm. but uh i think commissioners should be paid uh it sh- it you know has paid job responsibilities it it should be a paid position
0: yeah uh but but if it's an anc or it's like a district which is just yeah. like a you know rich jerk district like yeah. that seems like it's just bad like what what's like like if that's local democracy and it's local rich jerks like how is that not just bad
1: yeah, I mean that's a, that's also you know a thing that we, you know we solve through you know a policy solution of you know chipping away at segregation, which yeah. I think is that's also why you need labor democracy and tenant democracy. You know, you need democracy is not just like a, you know electing people to do things thing. The way I see it, at least, and this is why you know involved in you know lefty stuff like DSA that type of thing. Because my my vision of democracy really involves. Democracy is not just a political thing. It's a societal thing.
0: Yeah. Do, do you think like you said like in D.C. Some of the richer areas don't get built enough. Some of the poor areas get too much you know, yeah. built. Yeah. Like do you think that the overall democratic like how do you see that changing like in, in like real senses? How do you see that changing?
1: I think I think one thing is that there's been a lot more pro-housing movement even in the richer areas. Uh, Tenley Town even. Uh, that's one
0: thing. I, I I will never trust like yeah, rich I mean, libs to like do the right thing. Either. Yeah, I, there's nothing you can there, trust. You will never ref- like reform yeah. it from from the inside. You will, But
1: I think the big thing has got to be having a public developer.
0: Yeah, well, if in a public if a public developer can steamroll localism, like, then you're really talking. Yeah, and having the, the, a public developer that has and this is some of the stuff that's
1: written into the social housing bill or is, at least proposed to be is you know having essentially like a zoning trump card
0: yeah uh, if you i mean that's it. i i don't i'm not i don't think being secretive is ever good but like it's like a lot of people like we can sneak that in just make a developer and it can secretly just build anywhere all it wants it's like no
1: we like, don't want to be secret about it it's like no yeah, we are yeah, gonna just, build like because this is for the whole city yeah this is going to be exempt from all of that uh and it's gonna have complete priority over public sites yeah it's another big thing uh, DC DC government land is a very valuable thing I bet uh, also because the federal government owns a lot of stuff mm. and a lot of it gets sort of as an indirect subsidy given to private development when yeah. it really you know we, we should have a mechanism for it just to be used for the public
0: so but if you did make public developer completely uh, has a zony Trump card, are the rich areas gonna gonna kill that? Or do you think that's a, a fight that it can win?
1: I mean I think to get that you need to have that real city wide scale, you know, jurisdictional wide scale political democracy. So so the And yeah, you know, you gotta make sure that <laughs> you still have a city that you no know, working class people can afford to live in. I like, I like, I like the done. vision.
0: The vision is like, yeah, rich people seem like they always call the shots. But like, you know, people who aren't rich jerks have the numbers. They just lose yeah. in practice. Like if, if we have the ballot, we shouldn't be beggars. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's just, I think it's it's possible, but it also has to take more than just this kind of traditional political sort of arena of getting things done.
0: It, yeah, it does seem like if you are blinkered, like there is a lack of, yeah. you, you could say class consciousness among, oh, yeah. yeah, totally. Which is not just, I mean, class conscious people usually say is you know about like your, you know, your place in the work site, but I think class consciousness as you know, as no, your it, place it's,
1: in everywhere.
0: Yeah, it's, it's like a full societal thing, including habitation. Like I think, yeah. I think, yeah, maybe if people say, oh, that's not real class. I don't, I don't really care.
1: And I think there's also you know people talk about right, you know. Oh, well, people vote against their class interests and stuff. But I think it's important to note, in this past election, when Initiative 82, that minimum wage ballot measure in D.C. passed, got rid, rid of this, the sub-minimum wage. In Ward 8, it was the poorest, uh, you know, heavily black majority ward of D.C. It got, like, near 90% of the vote. Yeah. Like, it was overwhelming. Sure. So, the idea that, you know, people vote against their you know people vote against their economic interests yeah they do but when it's like you know cut and dried issues and when also issues can be framed as and people can be involved not just during elections if the
0: the culture war isn't like completely overwhelming and that's that's kind of that isn't in in the center of the culture war so
1: Yeah, yeah like those are things that like you know people aren't stupid like, sure, they can act stupid, but people <laughs> overall aren't,
0: like... Yeah. Uh, we, we've been going long. I will give you... I mean, we need to be back to talk about stuff we didn't get to, but, yeah. like, there's a lightning round. If you have any, you know, uh, 30 seconds of hot takes, you can, you know... <laughs> 30 speak, second hot s- takes. S- oh, Speak God. now or forever hold your peace. Oh,
1: right, This is what I was wanting to bring up. Uh, for parting thoughts, yimby and are verbs, not nouns or adjectives. Uh, say more, but briefly. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. From now on, I'm going to try to... People on Twitter hold me accountable to this. Uh, I'm not going to call people yimby or nimby or call myself that at all. I am going to use these words in the context of this person is nimby-ing. This person is or this person is yimby-ing. It's, it's weird. Or this person right now, they, nimbies
0: a lot. I mean, you people do say they nimbied that project. Yeah. People never say they yimbied that project.
1: Yeah. Which is yeah, that is a weird so that's asymmetry. Now, that's I think how we should use use this. This is you know, something courtesy of my my friends in Berkeley, Telegraph for People folks, yeah came up with this. Oh, we were just like sitting around a couch sometimes just like kind of vaguely thinking, and then this came out. But I think that is gonna be for me, my, my parting hot take is that, and it's sort of actually, I think in ma- many ways, how this is, in some ways, what it's like in in D.C., where it's like, you know, there, there are YIMBY groups in D.C., and there's also like, you know, urbanist groups, pro-housing groups, but overall, it's just like pro-housing progressive politics just kind of nests as like, oh, it is just progressive to be pro-housing. That's just something that exists.
0: Yeah.
1: It isn't that cut and tried, but I think that is a way better way to sort of reach to this than trying to
0: get to like this like essentialist kind like, of weird yeah, idea. Like, oh you like are the you are the pure MB Single or. issue are, big
1: yeah. tent type of thing. No, yeah. just like do lefty politics. Let's do left politics and just have like a debate within that about what we want our housing policy to look
0: like. I would I am very happy to talk policy more than talk about uh, you know the purity of definitions and weird yeah, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's a waste of time almost every single time. Uh, but that—that that is certainly a hot take uh, to, to end it on. But yeah, thanks for making it, uh, down yeah, here. Yeah, thank we did, you so much. I mean, this is your backyard here, in case shoot Nice to see you here in the studio for the for the first time. So
1: yeah, it's been great being down here. Except for all these technical
0: before <laughs> <laughs> we started. Yeah, but, it took take a while. Uh, I fixed it all. It's it's all working now. So okay, till next time. Yeah, thank you so much. We have been talking to Rohin Ghosh all about DC democracy, tenant issues, and much, much more. You can find this episode and all previous episodes of this radio program at the website cthecat.org. This is a presentation of KZSU, Stanford.